Are you ready for another round? the latest episode of Round Rants and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Robert Malone who is an American physician and biochemist. His early work focused on the mRNA vaccine and recently Robert has appeared on other podcasts such as Joe Rogan and the Rubin Report while speaking out against elements of the COVID vaccine and other issues regarding government policies around that. So Robert, thanks a million for taking time out to come on the show. And firstly, how are you getting on today? Good. It's a lovely day here in Virginia. Uh, a lot of sunshine. We're starting to just see springtime creep in. The grass is getting a little bit greener. We've got four foals on the ground and one still in the oven. So uh, everything is looking up. Good stuff. And yeah, it's a rarity here in Dublin. We can say that the weather is pretty good. Sun is out, sun is shining. No wind, no rain, so we'll take it. And yeah, so before we maybe delve into more contemporary topics that you've covered as of late, just for some of the listeners who are maybe new to your work, obviously you've been working in you know science and medicine for a very long period of time, but what made you get into like medicine, science in the first place? Like were you a young child when you got into it? Was it college? What made you gravitate towards that area? That's a good question. Uh, I was originally a carpenter and a farmhand. Uh, oh, wow. Worked orchards, uh, lemons and avocados, and and uh, did uh, rough out framing and shingling and that kind of stuff. Uh, still uh, rehab buildings. We're in the middle of uh, a couple of barns, and this is an old pig barn. Uh, actually, that's uh, now the recording studio. I did the um, a lot of the build out and framing and, and, uh, uh, the, uh, um, parging of the cinder block walls. This was built in 45. I decided, uh, when I was a young man that I didn't want to do carpentry my whole life. I had a young wife and, uh, really wanted to do, you know, see what I could do with myself and at the time in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, the idea of getting into medical school was crazy talk. It was insanely difficult. Uh, a true um, uh, system based on merit and achievement. And I was already a bent arrow. I was coming uh, out of a community college and uh, just you know bootstrapping my way up. But my mom had uh, always kind of put into my brain that in her ideal world, I would be a physician. And uh, my wife's parents really became my mentors and, and took care of me and encouraged it. And uh, so I took the path of, of saying, well, the probability that I would get into medicine was pretty low. I had spent two years as a computer science student, and I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a dark room looking at a computer monitor. <laughs> uh, this is early 80s, and so I like to joke that uh, now I, I sit and look at a computer monitor, but I make about one-tenth 
of what I had made if I'd stayed in computer science in the <laughs> early eighties. Uh, but the, you know, so it goes, we make our decisions. Yeah. And, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I sought out an opportunity to learn bench research and worked for a pathologist that eventually became chair of the department who had just come out of a, a fellowship with uh, Bishop and Varmus, which were Nobel Prize winners at UC San Francisco for the uh, discovery of the oncogene story. And so it was a pretty high-powered environment. Uh, he took me in, and uh, I just had it. I was good at it. I worked really hard. I brought the work ethic that I had always had from my time as a carpenter and, and a farmhand. And, and I just worked hard at it and, uh, kind of exceeded my own expectations. They wrote me a really good letter and I got a MD PhD scholarship at Northwestern. So I kind of overshot the mark. Uh, but that's, that's what got me here. Um, uh, as as the starting point. And I had a real passion for science. I believed that uh, science and particularly molecular biology and virology was uh, a brave new world, a, a new opportunity to uh, really be at the forefront. I'm a person who thrives on being out at the edge. Uh, I'm not a follower. I, I like to I like to kind of strike my own path. And, uh, and there aren't that many places left in the world where you can do that, but uh, at the forefront of science is one of them. Uh, unfortunately, science isn't the pure thing that I had hoped it was or believed it was at the time, but that's another part of the story. Yeah. And was this during that period that you kind of studied and assessed and as, you, as you've said on previous podcasts, that's where you came to the conclusion, came to the, the findings about the mRNA kind of technology around the potential vaccine that was, you know, produced several years so later. They, was my, the time? my time as an undergrad was in a laboratory that uh, was right at the forefront of AIDS in AIDS research and retroviral research. And they focused, uh, they pivoted to focusing on vaccine development. So that's kind of where I first uh, wet my, my toes in vaccinology and also in the preparation and purification and manipulation of RNA. Uh, I, I, uh, after two years of medical school, I wanted to do graduate work back on the West Coast. My wife was not happy in Chicago. Uh, we both grew up in Santa Barbara, so that was kind of an abrupt shock. Yeah. And and I found the science wasn't at the level that I was used to. So I took my graduate uh, exams, uh, nailed them and was able to go pretty much wherever I wanted to go. And the best place to do gene therapy, which at the time was all about retroviruses, was at UC San Diego in the Salk Institute. And so uh, they took me in and uh, that's where I really um, worked on trying to answer questions about the structure and function of RNA as it assembles into retroviruses. And in order to do that, I had to invent some new technology. And inadvertently, that ended up being uh, the really the birth of non-viral gene delivery and uh, the, the birth and, and initial realization that you could use RNA as a drug. And uh, then the insight that 
gene therapy was not going to work because uh, a child's immune system doesn't know that it's a good gene. It only knows that it's a different protein. And so it will attack cells that are expressing, let's say, a proper cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator or dystrophin protein. And so gene therapy clearly wasn't going to work, was, was one of my unfortunate insights. And so if that's the case, what can you do with a relatively inefficient gene therapy technology like mRNA delivery? And the easy answer for me was use it to produce a vaccine response because the immune system amplifies the biologic response. And uh, so that's what gave birth to the idea and the concept. And then uh, it was reduced to practice uh, at the Salk in terms of the delivery and then at Vical in terms of demonstrating that it could be used for vaccines. Okay. And you then fast forward all these years with everyone on planet Earth now knows what a vaccine is, or maybe not in depth, maybe as perhaps you would or other professionals would. But what I find interesting about you, you've, you've got an extensive background in science in the medical industry. You've had your ear to the ground from, as you were saying, like 80s, 90s, etc. A lot of people now are growing to know what these huge pharmaceutical companies, what these governments are associated with when it comes to, as I said, these huge pharmaceutical companies. And in your country, America, no matter how far back you look, there are lawsuits, there is corruption, there is maybe a lack of trust when it comes to the public towards the these huge pharmaceutical companies that now obviously are back in a lot of these vaccinations being passed around. How has, not necessarily your opinion, but what you've seen from growing up and working in the, in the industry and very close to the industry, do you feel like over the last 20, 30 years, these pharmaceutical companies and in turn maybe the government have lost trust or has there been, is it only really recently with COVID that this awareness and this lack of trust has kind of developed? So you have to be careful because we're all in a bubble. Uh, And there's a recent poll out here in the United States suggesting that the pharmaceutical industry is still among the most trusted in the United States on average. Uh, So, uh, has, has, despite the many uh, fines for fraud and other activities levied against Pfizer, I mean, one of the biggest uh, criminal penalties in history in the United States was levied against Pfizer. And yet the public still trusts them. <clears throat> so that's a paradox. And I think it is a clear demonstration of the power of modern marketing. Uh, which then bleeds into the power of modern psyops, really, which is a related field. Uh, So I don't know that your base assumption that the pharmaceutical industry is mistrusted is is actually correct. It's not necessarily valid, uh, except among those that have our eyes open and we're awake. How has the last three years increased uh, hesitancy or wariness about the uh, pharmaceutical industry and the vaccine segment in general. Yeah, you can see that indirectly in uh, aspects like the uptake of childhood vaccines in general, which is plummeting. 
and the uptake of these COVID vaccines into children, which has been very low in the less than 15%, and the uptake of uh, these boosters into the general population, which is also less than 15%. So we really have a minority of the population that trusts in the sense that they are willing to accept these products, these vaccine products that are basically genetic therapy-based. Despite the various mandates and propaganda and and compulsion and and, uh, incentives, et cetera, that have been uh, deployed uh, to um, uh, manufacture uh, willingness to accept the products, the... uh, you know, so things have changed. Uh, they, they're still a long ways, though, from uh, universal or even um, majority of the population having the degree of skepticism that I think is warranted, and you probably do also. Hmm. Uh, in terms of myself and my peers, for many of us, this has been an awakening. Uh, I, I, I've always been aware that there were corrupt aspects of the FDA and its relationship with the pharmaceutical industry and the CDC with its relationship with the vaccine industry, any of these federal agencies that have dual roles where they are both promoting an industry and regulating it are prone to this type of capture and corruption. But I don't think I've, and I've been through many, many outbreaks. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen the globally coordinated propaganda and psyops I've never seen uh, activities like the wholesale purchasing of influencers and artists and comedians and musicians all over the world simultaneously, or certainly the Western world. That's new to me. Um, The coordination of uh, the censorship is also uh, stunning. Whether, you know, whatever you think of uh, the necessity for the 77th Brigade or whomever to uh, deploy military-grade psyops on the general population to get them to accept these experimental products, whatever your thoughts are about that, I think you have to concede that it has been enormously successful in a, in a kind of a sick, twisted way. Uh, we're now in a position where the concept of individual sovereignty is even really... Uh, compromised. I mean, how, how can you have sovereignty in decision-making when you're having uh, military-grade propaganda weaponized against you to, with the goal of controlling your thoughts and emotions, uh, not just the content that you see, but what you think and believe? That's, that's what's been done. And so people think they have free will, but they're being very actively manipulated. It's, it's stunning what what the Western governments have have agreed to and and participated in and and uh, there in in Ireland you're you're you have a long history of uh, being very familiar with what the UK is willing to do, absolutely. Uh, and um, uh, you know it it uh, the idea of ethics and and um, guardrails and what's acceptable behavior and what isn't acceptable behavior with the civilian population. It just all seems grossly obsolete these days. It's it's an anachronism. It's total information warfare with no boundaries. Yeah, and yeah, no. As 
as you said there, like Ireland, we were, when you looked and compared us to the rest of Europe, we were as strict and as hardcore when it came to lockdowns and measurements that one country could be. So we, we felt the full blow, so to speak, of restrictions and lockdowns. And it was a, it still even is a topic of discussion today. If you turn on the radio or you turn on the news, it's, it's still something that is constantly being questioned. But to nearly rewind back to the nearly the beginning of the pandemic when on that fateful day in November, what was the 2019, the first case of COVID came to four and the panic started to gather no matter what way you looked at it. A big thing you've discussed about was the rollout of the vaccine and the different maybe precautions that needed to be covered that weren't, certain steps that were skipped. I do understand that it was a time-sensitive like situation. There was a lot of pressure on people, governments, as I said, livelihoods, everything. But like, what are your, now that we have hindsight in our back pockets, what are the maybe the biggest concerns or criticisms you would have had of the, of the vaccine rollout? And if you could have changed something and gone back in time, what would it have been? Well, of course, the, the thing that really initially radicalized me and that I spoke out about was the bioethics of what was being done, that, that uh, people were being uh, compelled and coerced and propagandized into accepting an experimental medical product without adequate informed consent is shocking. Uh, the willingness to do that on the part of Western governments is stunning. It's uh, very much aligned with the Chinese model of basically shut up and do what you're told. And uh, it's fascinating to me in retrospect that it was the Five Eyes nations in particular, the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance being Great Britain, UK, US, New Zealand, and Australia that had some of the most uh, egregiously authoritarian policies uh, of, of the entire world. I mean, we could argue about Austria um, and and maybe some of the other EU countries, but for the most part, it was this Five Eyes Alliance, uh, former uh, uh, Commonwealth-associated uh, uh, countries that um, became extremely uh, regressive, uh, authoritarian, uh, I, in a way that was completely unexpected. I... I I'm still stunned to see what has happened in Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, for example. Uh, and uh, so, how, you know, what do we make of this? I, I, we're, we're now in a different relationship, I think, with the, with the government, with the nation state. And, of course, under, underpinning all of this is the new belief system that uh, uh, the, the obstacle to successful centrally controlled economies has been the lack of sufficient data and algorithmic analysis. And that if we only had enough data on every single person, then we could eliminate crime, uh, optimize uh, resource allocation, optimize production, minimize uh, threats to the environment, and uh, basically create a worker's paradise uh, in a, a centralized command economy 
run by unelected uh, um, self-appointed global leaders that happen to have uh, won the lottery in terms of how much money they have and how much uh, power they control. It's I, I recently was in uh, the UK uh, speaking to a conservative group about Andrew Bridgen, who's you know been run out of the Conservative Party, and uh, I learned there something I hadn't known before that basically the leadership of the European Union is unelected. I found that stunning. Uh, it it is absolutely mirroring what the World Economic Forum seems to be promoting. Uh, for all of us, is that we should live under centralized authority in a command economy environment with unelected leaders uh, that basically represent the interests of industry uh, calling the shots. And um, I don't want to live in that world. I don't think you probably want to live in that world. And uh, these people believe that it's appropriate for them to shape their own words, a future of transhumanism in which God is obsolete, uh, man has substituted himself for God. Uh, um, the fourth industrial revolution uh, will will happen, and it will result in the fusion of man and machine, and we will pass through a singularity to really uh, make human beings as a species obsolete, and transition to some new entity. It this is bizarre. Uh, thinking it's it's very reminiscent of uh, the um, thinking that we've seen in the past that we've called Marxism uh, or Marxism Leninism uh, it's it's very much grounded in utilitarianism and uh, the logic that uh, we have limited resources here on the world and uh, our only way forward is going to be through some sort of a population control agenda. I think that most of us have seen those movies, whether it's Mad Max or it's uh, The Matrix and all of the all of the things in between. And of course, we many of us have read the literature of uh, George Orwell and uh, Brave New World and all the other, you know, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, uh, um, the work of William Gibson. Uh, it's we've we've seen this uh, dark dystopia uh, projected in fiction. I don't think we have to live it to recognize the flaws within it. And what and what you say is it's kind of based on an overall experience, but especially when you, you really focus on the last two to three years, you realize the the power as you said nearly of the narrative and these marketing journeys they've gone on and the control of the media and you're the first guest i've had on today for all the wrong reasons that there's been attacks on you you've been kicked off twitter thankfully you've been uh, allowed back on and thriving but at what stage during it so i'll give you my example for instance when during covid i thought hang on this this doesn't make sense where i went to the doctor I was a bit sick. I tested for COVID. I came back negative and I was speaking to him. I'm also a type one diabetic, so I'm high risk regardless of what the illness is. And he was telling me that maybe I should consider going to hospital. But the worry was if you went to hospital, a lot of the time you'd get COVID because it was so rampant in these places. 
And he then said that his daughter had gone in for surgery and stayed overnight. And while she was there, it was going to be two or three days recovery. She picked up COVID in the hospital and then she was being treated as a COVID uh, patient. And then therefore, when it comes to the analytical point of view, she's another hospitalization due to COVID and she also wasn't vaccinated. So that's another stat that gets pinned to the board. And I was thinking she's in there for a surgery. She's not in there because of COVID. Yes, when the argument comes to the table, she's going to go down as an unvaccinated COVID person who ended up in hospital. And I was thinking that that, that just isn't right. Yet I'm reading it on the front page of the Irish Times or whatever paper I choose to pick up in the shop the following day. But at what point for you, maybe it was when you saw the vaccine rolled out and you read the ins and outs of it, but at what stage of, say, the COVID pandemic did you have serious concerns, whether it's about the government, whether it's about the vaccine, whether it's about the lockdowns, like at, at what stage did that come to you? Uh, that would be about March 2020, uh, when the book that my wife had put out about preparing and protecting yourself from the novel coronavirus, it didn't even have a name at the time when she published it in the beginning of February 2020 was uh, deplatformed by Amazon without a, any appeal. Uh, and after, after much back and forth, we learned that uh, the rationale was that we had violated community standards, uh, which uh, there was no indication of what those community standards are, and they wouldn't tell us. They wouldn't tell us anything further. That's when I knew that, uh, you know, metaphorically uh, referring to the Wizard of Oz, we were no longer in Kansas. <laughs> Uh, that that things were just not right. The uh, um, subsequent events, as I spent uh, a year and a half working closely with the Department of Defense to repurpose drugs, and uh, we ran into all kinds of barriers uh, on the part of the FDA to proceed with cl- uh, well-funded, randomized, well-designed clinical trials that included ivermectin, for example. Uh, They just wouldn't let us move forward unless we proved the mechanism of action of ivermectin for COVID using cell culture, which is pretty much an absurd statement for particularly for a licensed drug well known to be safe. Uh, So there and we were working with other uh, previously repurposed, you know, previously licensed drugs that were known to be safe under those conditions, including celecoxib and famotidine. Uh, there shouldn't have been these barriers. And uh, the team that was working for DOD together with me were a bunch of really seasoned uh, white hairs. You know, we'd been through uh, many, many INDs and uh, clinical protocols and drug development programs. None of us had ever seen anything like it before. Then there was the... Uh, um, the use of propaganda to coerce and compel people to take these products down to the level of giving children ice cream cones to get them to take the jab in Canada, which I found shocking. Yeah. And uh, for an unlicensed, you know, experimental product, absolutely stunning. And uh, um, the actions of Mr. Trudeau, uh, the, um, common technical document that Byron Bridle, this Canadian uh, vaccinologist, had discovered on a Japanese server, of which I was one of the first to analyze, 
in which I could see that that the proper studies according to the well-accepted norms, international norms, had not been performed. Uh, all what, of these things... And what do they look uh, like, those studies? All of these things demonstrated to me that just something wasn't wasn't right. Now I'm going to just take a moment and turn up my monitor because you're such you you have such a soft voice. I'm not catching you very well. One moment. No worries. Yeah, hopefully that'll that's much better here. I need to turn it down a little bit. <laughs> I don't want to get feedback. Yeah. Um, so uh, a lot of things, a whole cascade of things, I refer to it as not really that I was red-pilled by a specific event, but rather a whole cascade of things that gradually built and built and built. And when you mentioned there about the concerns that you read, like around, say, for instance, the release of the vaccine, like you've gone on and stated that it should it to do the proper testing to qualify the drug, it takes several years. And like, do you propose that should have been the bare minimal to say that this product, this vaccine is 100%, you know, well, not 100%, but as close to 100% foolproof as possible? Or like, what would you've, in an ideal world, looked for out of these vaccine companies to do before they obviously formulated Well, they should have followed the rules. Uh, and the regulatory agencies should have forced them to follow the rules. Now, the, the tension in all of this comes out, just if I can illustrate, let's imagine that uh, instead of SARS-CoV-2, which turns out to be not very lethal at all, uh, let's imagine that we're talking about a aerosol-transmitted Ebola virus, just for the sake of argument, not that that exists. But uh, there have been scenarios worked up for what a aerosol-transmitted uh, Ebola virus might do to the global population. And those scenarios come out at something like a billion people dead. Now, if we had had a pathogen like that, people would be lining up to take a partially effective um, and somewhat toxic vaccine. In fact, the Ebola vaccine that I worked on and then transferred to Merck uh, that was originally developed by Public Health Agency Canada is actually a pretty nasty vaccine. You feel like somebody has beaten you up. Maybe, you know, you're, maybe your metaphor is you just come out of a really tough rugby game uh, if you take that vaccine. And uh, yet, if you're facing the prospect of having Ebola, you're, you'll line up to take it. Uh, it's a risk-benefit ratio. In this case, they promoted this and really forced it into the population as if we were facing something with the risk profile akin to uh, aerosol-transmitted Ebola, but it was absolutely nowhere near that pathogenic. Now, part of that was the consequence early on of active fear and propaganda that was promoted from China to the West. That's, that cannot be disputed. The images of people dying on the streets and, and uh, Chinese officials in full hazmat suits and the rapid build out of the hospital 
and all the discussion about how the hospitals were all filled up. That, that was all Chinese propaganda. And uh, it, it was weaponized by actors who it's not really clear who was really behind it and used to not only instill fear in the population, but instill fear into politicians who felt like they had no other options other than to cut short uh, the development process and try to rush this vaccine out. That was another one of the, the false stories that were told. When in fact, very early on, we knew that there were a variety of repurposed agents, which if administered early would save lives. Something like 98% of lives or more could have been saved with early treatment using available agents. So there were multiple lies stacked up that resulted in the tragedy that we've all experienced. Uh, should the vaccines have been deployed rapidly? I, I think that is clear in retrospect that that rushing and circumventing normal processes to ensure safety, including rigorous clinical trials with well-controlled data and um, a control group that didn't get eliminated right away, would have allowed us to make sense out of many of the things that have happened subsequently and to predict the risks and to better tune who should be receiving these products and who shouldn't. But uh, none of that was done in this mad rush to push these things out the door. And I think that deserves a lot of scrutiny as to why that happened and how that happened and whether there was undue influence on the part of pharma large pharmaceutical companies on decision-making at the National Health Service and the USHHS and European Medicines Agency, et cetera. That, that I think absolutely has to be done. There has to be investigations and people have to be held accountable. Uh, and and there, there really should be consequences for the actions that were taken that were illegal or highly inappropriate. Uh, so uh, I, if, from my point of view, it's unequivocal. The products were rushed. It was not necessary. There were other options that would have been more uh, appropriate for public health. Uh, it has never been uh, the case that uh, these uh, mandates, lockdowns, etc., should be uh, imposed. The literature on mask use for respiratory viruses has been fairly clear for quite a long time. These uh, paper masks, which are really just dust particle masks, are not effective. An N95 might be slightly effective if it's used properly, except for the fact that this coronavirus also infects by your eyes. And last I checked, we weren't walking around with masks covering our eyes. So all of that logic was flawed. Uh, the six foot distancing was purely arbitrary. That's been documented now. It was basically a conversation, including the director of our CDC, Bob Redfield, that basically, to the gentlest way to put it is they pulled it out of a hat. Uh, um, uh, it has no scientific basis. All, all of these measures were, were put in place in a haphazard, arbitrary, and capricious manner. 
and had enormous costs, the max, masking of our children uh, in terms of educational delays and developmental delays, uh, the damage to our economies, uh, the damage to the Irish economy has, has been profound. And with that, with the lockdowns, the social isolation, the depression, uh, suicide, drug abuse, a whole cascade of badness came out of that that was absolutely unnecessary. Yeah, uh, yeah. even speaking locally, I remember the early suicide rates weren't released during COVID. There was, as I said, so many businesses. I even knew, knew business owners myself that had to close as a result of the just countless lockdowns when the rest of Europe had pretty much opened up. And as you mentioned there, there was a lot of messaging that was pushed out and whether it was coming from our media or the US media or the UK media a big one was like you need to be vaccinated in order to have the highest like immunity towards COVID and I've only just read there in the last week that you know tests and studies have shown that like immunity acquired from COVID itself is you know on par even better than doses of the vaccine. Yeah, that's fascinating that you say that because it's been known for quite a long time. Because would I be right in saying that was one of the big reasons like the uproar of you and Joe Rogan kind of happened? I remember at the time people were just saying that simply wasn't true, yet now everywhere worldwide is reporting it to be true. Yeah, that and and these uh, words, mask formation, psychosis, and, and so many other things, the perverse financial incentives uh, to hospitals in the United States to over-report. Just uh, a lot of things that I said there, I was attacked, particularly by the British press, for saying, and uh, have pretty much become accepted wisdom in the subsequent year. So I take I take a certain amount of, of uh, uh, vindication out of that, but no pleasure. I, I wish it wasn't true. I wish things... Uh, um, I wish that we had not had this misrepresentation and propaganda and all that, but it is what it is. Yeah. And one thing I just want to ask about the vaccine, because as I've said, you, you'd know a lot more about this type of stuff than me. And it's, it's what my, I have conversations with my family about my friends, people I work with is, the vaccine itself, that whether it was lies, whether it was the truth, whether it's different strains, because there has been multiple, like I've had three different strains of COVID over the last pretty much three years, and they've all been fluctuating in how they've affected me, so to speak. But how is it the case where a vaccine has basically deteriorated with time? So whether it's false reporting or just reactionary based on to the strains at the start it was like high 80 percent or even 90 percent against protection against covid and the symptoms to now it's it's in some yeah, cases a lot like of 18%. a lot of that was artifacts in falsehoods based on how they were reporting the data uh and um really uh statistical artifacts um, those high numbers uh were were really a question of playing with numbers creatively to get those kinds of percentages. The, uh, um, in a recent paper, Tony Fauci published in one of the cell 
Associated Publications, he acknowledged that this type of a vaccine never had a chance to get out ahead of the evolution of the virus and to be effective. It wasn't being the virus infects in your nasal pharynx. It doesn't affect systemically in the same way. And uh, so you really need a mucosal vaccine. In theory, he argues. I concur. Uh, but uh, so it's been known that this strategy was unlikely to work. Uh, and yet it was pushed by people who really didn't understand what they were talking about, including journalists pretended to be scientists. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of them. Yeah, there's a lot, awful lot of that. Uh, journalists that don't really understand what they're talking about, but they say it very loudly. I'm, I'm reminded of the joke about uh, the characteristics of a surgeon, uh, often wrong, but never in doubt. Uh, <laughs> and that seems to be the case with journalists, too. Uh, um, and uh, so uh, the, the underlying, there's a couple of underlying issues. One is that the universal deployment of a vaccine into an ongoing outbreak with all the viral pressure associated with that is pretty much a perfect recipe for selecting for escape mutant viruses, viruses that are resistant to the uh, response that the vaccine generates. So generally, you don't want to do that. You want to vaccinate before an outbreak so that you never get this massive viral pressure uh, on the whole population because it's just a recipe for failure when that happens, particularly with an RNA virus that mutates very rapidly by its very nature as a single-stranded RNA virus. In addition to that, there's a long-standing problem that's plagued influenza vaccinology, which is basically a forbidden topic among vaccinologists in public. Uh, the literature is there, but it's another one of these things we don't talk about because it's an inconvenient truth. And that is that if you repeatedly vaccinate, you basically generate something called immune imprinting. And that is, you can think of it as a form of memory in which your immune system is uh, focused on responding to things that are increasingly irrelevant, either because the virus is mutated or there are epitopes that are um, uh, not critical or uh, a number of other phenomena. You, know, you can focus your immune response on yesterday's virus, which is what's been going on with the COVID shots. So immune imprinting seems to be part of it. And the FDA had originally warned about the prospects of antibody-dependent enhancement. That was actually in a lot of the initial uh, licensing discussions and and documentation from the FDA, and they had demanded that the pharmaceutical companies do experiments to demonstrate that this would not happen because it's plagued all prior human coronavirus vaccine development efforts. And uh, then there was a period of time where it was believed that antibody-dependent enhancement wasn't happening because of some nuances of this virus not being able to replicate in macrophage. But then there's been more recent studies demonstrating that a related pathway somewhat different is being antibody enhanced. So we basically have multiple mechanisms by which the jabs are 
damaging the immune system in a variety of different ways and not only setting it up so that you're more likely to get COVID or get the significant disease or death if you take multiple of these products due to direct damage and these in indirect immunologic phenomena, um, but also as the more you take them, the more likely you are to get the adverse events associated with taking them, such as the myocarditis. And so, you know, what, what the leading members of the U.S. government called hope that these products would be safe and effective rather than basing their decisions on data has unfortunately proven uh, to be a false hope. And uh, all over the world, we've had people that have been damaged or died unnecessarily because of, of uh, the toxicity associated with these products, both in terms of the protein that is produced. Spike is a toxin. Another thing I was criticized for saying, but is now self-evident. And uh, the formulations themselves are toxic. That can be seen, for instance, in the... Uh, failure of the phase three trials of Moderna's influenza vaccine that has just been announced. So that's a, that's a product that doesn't produce spike, and yet it's still so toxic that it fails to uh, be allowed to proceed to licensure. Uh, so that's, that's the uh, you know, inconvenient, unfortunate truth of where we're at right now is uh, the governments in their rush and their fear and frankly, their cowardice and corruption uh, have forced things onto the general population that were counterproductive, that made things worse uh, from the lockdowns to the masks, to the school closures, to uh, these, uh, many of the drugs that were promoted, uh, to withholding early treatment, and then, of course, to the jabs themselves. Interesting. And one thing I'd like to ask, and with everything you read about COVID or everything you've seen over the last two to three years, one thing that really sparked my interest was, as you've said countless times in this podcast, like a lot of this is down to science. And what I agree with science is that, say, for instance, if you mix two chemicals, you're going to get the same reaction every single time because that's how science is. It's consistent. No matter what way you dress it up, it's more or less going to be consistent with the outcome at the end of the day. But you read a lot of, say, the US media, when they post some of these crazy headlines, and they can be pro or anti-vaccine, they can be pro-COVID or anti-COVID, a lot of things are seem to be the result of what is known as observational data as opposed to scientific data. And I was just wondering if in, say, the case of COVID or when it comes to the vaccine, like when someone is saying based on our observational data, like what, what does that actually mean? Like, is that just me looking at you? I and think saying, you may be misinterpreting that a little bit. Um, uh, and it's worth... Uh, learning about the pyramid of, of uh, data hierarchy in medicine in making determinations about these things. Case histories in which there's a physician observing 
a given case is actually the foundation upon which medicine is built, but it's very prone to bias. And so what's typically done is uh, physicians may observe something and typically report it. For instance, a physician may say, I'm seeing more cancers. I'm seeing cancers in popping back up in people that uh, were previously thought to be cured. And after they take the jab, suddenly their cancer comes back. Okay. That could easily be an artifact of a bias on the part of the observer, the pathologist. So then once you have those signals, the next thing you have to do is more rigorous studies. And there's a cascade of rigor uh, from a case series, which is a collection of these cases, and you examine them to see if there's common commonality, all the way up to a randomized clinical trial. And then even above a randomized clinical trial is a meta-analysis in which you look at a compendium of trials and examine those statistically. That's even more powerful, but it's a little tricky. And so that's, that's the way science works is you start from somebody saying, I think I see something, but I'm not sure. And it might be due to this uh, all the way up to definitively testing. And this gets into evidence-based medicine uh, is the modern logic that we should only make decisions based on fully validated information. And again, that fails when you're facing an outbreak like this, a crisis. And so the way that has typically things have proceeded in medicine historically has been that physicians operate through trial and error to a significant extent using the agents that they have available in their own minds. And that's what happened with the various discoveries of the early treatment protocols. But to then take those early treatment protocols and rigorously test them in a randomized clinical trial will typically take one to two or more years. And in the face of an outbreak like this, you don't really have that time. So that's why historically physicians have done this kind of observational research, which is this, uh, has a component of trial and error. And so that's why it's super important when you're doing that that you provide informed consent. You say to the patient, okay, this is not yet a proven therapy. I think it will work because this, that, and the other reason. Here's the potential risks, which we know about these drugs and how they interact. And you can choose to take this or take the standard of care. And uh, either way is fine with me. That's the way that should be presented. It's often not presented that way. Physicians usually have their own bias. And people that have come up with a treatment protocol often become very invested in it. Oh, it's my treatment protocol. You should take that because I'm a great physician or surgeon or whatever the thing is. So that's just the nature of human beings. But uh, that's, that's how things should have proceeded. And uh, what's odd in this case is this imposition of requirements that people follow a standardized protocol developed by people, for instance, at the NIH that don't actually treat patients. Uh, that's where we really went sideways. 
And then the logic that, well, we shouldn't have early treatment available because then that would dissuade people from taking a, a fully safe and effective vaccine. So there's a whole bunch of assumptions that were baked into this, frankly, before the virus ever hit our shores. If you look at event 201 and the preceding war game planning, they, they assumed that we would have a highly lethal pathogen in a fully safe and effective vaccine, that there wouldn't be any early treatment options from repurposed drugs, and that there would be civil unrest. And so based on those parameters, they came up with operational battle plans functionally that said that we were going to use the military and we were going to coerce, compel, propagandize to get the population to take these, even though they might not trust them and might not trust the government. Uh, and if they don't, we'll have to resort to heavy-handed tactics like uh, billy clubs and, and uh, suppressing protests and, and uh, horses stomping on old women in wheelchairs, and et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's kind of how this played out, is there was a bunch of assumptions that were false, uh, and they came up with plans. And like, I don't know if you've served, uh, I'm sure many of your audience has uh, in the military, but anyone who has and has been in any kind of a command position or taught about that knows that the first thing that goes out the window when you counter the enemy is your battle plan. You have to revise it immediately when you encounter what the ground truth is. And in this case, all across the world, they did not do that. And so that's either a major uh, flaw and an indication of incompetence, or it's an indication that none of this had anything to do with public health. And that's the dilemma, is how do you differentiate between nefarious or malicious intent and gross incompetence? Because that's kind of where we're at right now. Uh, and it can be both. You, you can have gross incompetence and uh, malicious intent at the same time. And, and I, I can't, I'm not at the bottom of it. I don't think I know what the answer is. And people who tell me they think they know, I'm usually pretty skeptical about because whatever has been the hidden hands here behind all this coordination, I mean, you can't have this kind of global coordination without some entity controlling it. That's just too far-fetched. Um, so what is that entity? Uh, you know, is it the Five Eyes Consortium? There's so many, is it the WEF? Is it the bankers? You know, we can go on and on and on about the speculation of who the nefarious actor was. Is it the CCP? Is it all the above, all acting together? Uh, you know, is it the, uh, the monarchists, the historic monarchy of old Europe? I mean, I've heard so many different theories. Uh, but the bottom line is none of us really know. Uh, we, can, we can tell that there was something out there uh, coordinating all this. There was some source of massive capital infusion early on to promote the purchasing of influencers and musicians and uh, comedians and writers and, and uh, reporters. Uh, we know that the U.S. government dropped at least $10 billion on that, uh, but that doesn't account for what happened in Austria. That doesn't account for what happened in, in Ireland. Uh, it's it's hard to wrap your head your heads your hands around 
what's transpired here. Uh, and I and I can't say, despite spending a year writing this book uh, and trying to make sense out of these things and helping other people make sense out of them, I, I still am, am in the stage of describing what has happened and making some sense out of some layers. But what is going on behind the scenes and all this, I'm still clueless. Well, hopefully... <laughs> In the not too distant future, it all becomes transparent, and the like. C. Montgomery Burns kind of evil leader. Yeah, of and, this and whole maybe thing. maybe there are unicorns in a Santa Claus. <laughs> Perhaps. Well, well, Robert, that more or less uh, wraps it up. I'd obviously love to chat for hours, but I know you're on a tight schedule. But how we normally finish these podcasts is just with a quick few questions, quick fire questions. And then I can send you on your way. Um, So I'll I'll kick straight into it. So uh, your favorite film of all time? Casablanca. Good choice. But closely followed by Cloud Atlas. Oh, Cloud Atlas. Yeah, the Tom Hanks one. Yeah, I probably need to see that again. It was like a four-hour crazy trip, but I'll, I'll probably review that soon. And what is worse, doing the dishes Hoover in the house or changing the bed sheets? Hoover in the house. <laughs> You're the first person to say that, but each to their own. Uh, the favorite book you've ever read? Favorite book? That's a harder one. Um, I, I was really influenced by the trio of uh, Death of Socrates Brave New World in 1984. Uh, But um, really, uh, as a young person, just absolutely dove into uh, the works of Shakespeare. I still really love uh, Shakespearean theater. Um, I I would say it's, it's, it's complicated because I'm, I, uh, you know, your, your tastes change over time. Uh, I was very influenced by Ayn Rand uh, when I was younger. Uh, so I'd say uh, layers of different books at different points in time. Okay. So what's next? The Your favorite song of all time? Hmm. Favorite song? Um, or it could just be one at the moment you're kind of digging so to speak <laughs> no no um uh american pie i think is just got this um uh tugs at the heartstrings uh a lot of you know i used to be my favorites were from the uh early 70s crosby stills nash uh joni mitchell that kind of uh, laurel canyon era and then uh, Neil Young came out after the Joe Rogan podcast, and <laughs> now I can't even listen to those things anymore. And I, I would prefer to listen to, uh, um, you know, some of the uh, more edgy uh, modern stuff. Um, so, yeah, no, I get that. And second last one is cats or dogs. Dogs. But uh, we're—I'm a big horse fan. Okay. Uh, 
but we have three Aussies. Uh, I like cats too, but uh, but dogs are the thing. Okay. And last question is, if you could ask yourself one question that I haven't asked you today, what would it be? I'm surprised you didn't ask me about the better future ahead. And, uh, and what can we do going forward uh, to address things like the vaccine injured and um, those issues? So that would, that would be the, the, that, that area. Yeah, and that kind of leads me to my, my final point is like you obviously have that book on showcase behind you on the, on the screen. Is there anything in particular, whether it's follow your socials or your book or any work you're doing at the moment? That oh, for that, for, for, for pumping things. Yeah. Uh, Pump away. Uh, please, <laughs> please for, if you want to catch our, our, the work product for myself and my wife on a daily basis, and you don't have to pay, you can subscribe to rwmalonemd.substack.com. And it'll just come straight into your inbox via email. Uh, although uh, some of the Bill Gates products, for some reason, uh, I have a tendency to route it into your junk mail. I just can't imagine why. Uh, so, um, uh, so Substack is a good one, and uh, Truth Social, Gab, Getter, and of course Twitter at R to B Malone MD. And then for the for the real aficionados that are interested in things like the Young Leaders Program and who's graduated from that from the WEF and and want to get into those documents, it's uh, the Malone Institute. So that's maloneinstitute.org is a good website that we put a lot of the deeper stuff and the spreadsheets and those kind of things onto. Super. Well, listen, Robert, I will attach all those links below. So anyone listening on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, just look down if you are interested in any of that. And I just want to thank you for taking time out to have a chat. I know it's been several weeks in the making, but it was definitely worthwhile. And um, listen, I, I look forward to what comes next with yourself. And yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, thanks. On to the next podcast. Be good. And thanks for taking the time. <laughs>